The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning from Charleston, South Carolina. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, February 24th. In today's news, President Trump addresses a rally with more than 100,000 people in India. China delays its annual legislative meeting over the coronavirus outbreak. And a couple that vanished in the woods on Valentine's Day has been found alive. It's an amazing story of survival. But first, the big idea. Bernie Sanders has seized a commanding position in the Democratic presidential race, building a diverse coalition that's driving his liberal movement toward the cusp of taking over the party. The senator's ascendancy, though years in the making, is forcing a sudden reckoning in the Democratic hierarchy as centrist politicians and their wealthy benefactors grapple with the upheaval brought by an electorate not only hungry to defeat President Trump, but also clamoring for radical change. Following Sanders' resounding victory in the Nevada caucuses on Saturday, and with polls showing him on the rise not just in South Carolina, but across several of the 14 states that vote on Super Tuesday, Democrats are entering a season of open warfare over whether Sanders is equipped to beat Trump in what will be a brutal general election. The Sanders insurgency is the culmination of grievances that have simmered for the past decade among liberals who say Washington has all but ignored the problems of income inequality, health care access, and climate change. On the campaign trail, there's an unusual intensity to Sanders' performances, reminiscent of the energy that built around Trump on the right during his 2016 rise. Sanders has emerged as a movement candidate. His rallies coast to coast draw tens of thousands of people who wait for hours to see him. Sanders' emphatic win in the Silver State illustrated his potential to expand his coalition far beyond the ceiling of 25% or 30% that many party establishment figures and commentators had assumed he had. In Nevada, for example, he won 29% of whites, 51% of Hispanics, and 27% of blacks. He won a staggering 65% of caucus goers under 30 years old, and he carried every other age group except for those over 65, which Joe Biden won. The race for the nomination is still just getting started and remains fluid. Half a dozen contenders are still running. No one shows any sign of dropping out. But Sanders has momentum, and it's unclear who, if anyone, can stop him at this point, especially after Mike Bloomberg's bad debate performance last week. The next primary is this Saturday here in South Carolina where the latest polls show Biden narrowly leading. He's in the mid-20s, with Sanders running close behind. The Super Tuesday contests are the following Tuesday, March 3rd, a week from tomorrow. They may be decisive. Voters in California and Texas, among other places, will decide about one-third of the nearly 4,000 pledged delegates that will be awarded this year. Some other candidates have stepped up their attacks on Sanders in urgent hopes of blunting his rise and preventing him from essentially locking in the nomination next week. Pete Buttigieg, who finished third behind Sanders and Biden in Nevada, has been the most aggressive, warning that Sanders as the party's standard bearer would be disastrous for down-ballot Democrats in November. He's on the air here with commercials attacking Sanders over Medicare for All. Last night in Denver, Elizabeth Warren ripped Sanders for not wanting to get rid of the Senate filibuster, and then she added that she's not a socialist like Bernie is. Amy Klobuchar has changed up her stump speech. In Fargo, North Dakota, yesterday afternoon, she said that Bernie would cost Democrats the House. Now, Sanders is bracing for an even harsher assault to come tomorrow night when he faces his Democratic rivals at a debate 
in Charleston that will air on CBS. Some Democratic leaders are sounding the alarm about the party's viability with Sanders atop the ticket, and these various Democratic candidates are hoping to capitalize on those fears. The latest to join the chorus is House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn, the number three in Democratic leadership and an ally of Nancy Pelosi. He went on two Sunday shows, ABC's This Week and NBC's Meet the Press, to warn that Sanders could jeopardize the party's House majority. He told the local paper here that Sanders would be as bad for the party's electoral hopes as George McGovern was in 1972 when he lost in a landslide to Richard Nixon. Clyburn, it should be said, is widely expected to endorse Biden at an event on Wednesday morning. For the proudly liberal and activist wing of the Democratic Party, though, Sanders' ascent is being welcomed as a potentially historic development. Robert Reich, the liberal former labor secretary and a professor of public policy at Cal Berkeley, said this moment can be traced directly back to the 2008 financial crisis, which he called a galvanizing event that led to the surge in anti-establishment fervor that led to Bernie Sanders. Reich says this isn't like McGovern in 1972 because back then, almost 50 years ago now, America's middle class was still growing. What you see now, he explained, is a middle class responding to not having a real raise in 40 years. Randy Weingarten, the president of the American Federation of Teachers Union, compares the disruptive mood of Democratic voters right now to the right-wing Tea Party movement in 2010. Weingarten's union has not endorsed a candidate, but last week approved its members to support Sanders, Warren, or Biden. She says teachers feel a sense that things are broken, and they like Sanders because he'll shake things up. Sanders is trying to counter the assumption of many of the establishment that he's too liberal to win the general election. At a rally on Sunday afternoon in Houston, before an enthusiastic crowd of more than 6,000, Sanders read aloud the results of a few recent polls that show him defeating the president in head-to-head matchups nationally, as well as in such states as Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one. President Trump arrived in India for his first official visit today, the beginning of a whirlwind 36-hour tour that includes a mega rally, which already drew more than 100,000 people, a visit to the Taj Mahal, and a day of ceremonies and meetings in Delhi. Trump was greeted by Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, whom Trump recently described as a good friend of mine. The two leaders appeared together at a rally last year in Houston. This is repaying the favor by Modi. Trump's visit to India comes as the two countries continue to deepen their security cooperation but face stubborn tensions over trade. The Modi government has faced considerable international criticism, including from many members of our Congress, over its crackdown in Kashmir, India's only Muslim-majority state, and the passage of a controversial religion-based citizenship bill that has led to protests across the country. In the run-up to this trip, a senior White House official told reporters on a conference call that Trump will raise the issue of religious freedom with Modi, but only in private. Thousands of people lined the streets of Ahmedabad to welcome Trump today. Preparations for the parade before the president's rally included building a wall to hide a slum along his route. Number two. China's ruling Communist Party has just postponed the biggest event in China's political calendar, the National People's Congress, as it concentrates on fighting the coronavirus. The annual legislative session, held together with a meeting of the party's top political advisory body, was due to begin on March 5th, but the standing committee decided at a meeting in Beijing today that it would need to be delayed. It didn't set a new date for the meetings, known collectively as the two sessions. This will be the first time since 1997 that the meetings have not started in the first week of March. 
President Xi Jinping said Sunday that the outbreak is a crisis that will test the Chinese economy. He said during a speech that no victory should be lightly announced until there is a complete win, adding that the situation remains grim and complex. China is now backtracking on a decision to relax travel restrictions on Wuhan. Official figures released Monday show that there have been 409 new cases of the coronavirus and 150 new deaths from the outbreak on Sunday alone, bringing the total confirmed cases in mainland China to 77,150 with a cumulative death toll of 2,592. And a new Chinese study that's just coming out says that the outbreak maybe didn't actually start at the Wuhan market as everyone had said. Co-authored by researchers from three Chinese institutions, including the Chinese Academy of Sciences, this study attempts to trace how the virus emerged and evolved. The authors analyzed the genomic data from 93 samples of the coronavirus and concluded that it was likely to have spread to the market from someplace else. Researchers believe that human-to-human transmission might have started in Wuhan as early as late November. The market wasn't closed until January 1st. Number three, a California couple who went missing for about a week after a Valentine's Day hike were rescued this weekend, two days after officials had given up hope that they would be found alive. Carol Kaparski, 77, and Ian Irwin, 72, were last seen at an Airbnb they were renting in Marin County on Valentine's Day. They were going to check out on February 15th, Their belongings, including a phone, their wallets, and a car, were found at the vacation cottage, and they were nowhere to be seen. A search by state, local, and federal agencies began on February 16th, but then the effort was reclassified on Thursday as a recovery mission. Irwin, a leading Parkinson's disease researcher, is known for his work on the team that identified what was causing Parkinson's among heroin users in the 1980s, and Kaparsky, a prominent linguist, has written several books about language. The couple ventured into the wilderness near Tamales Bay, unprepared for a long hike or a cold night. The couple wanted to watch the sunset, but they took a wrong turn after it got dark. They ventured into an area of dense vegetation and a steep incline, and then they couldn't make it out on their own. They survived for more than a week by drinking from a puddle and eating plants. Days before the rescue, police announced that they hadn't found the pair, but that a cadaver dog may have picked up their scent. The team that found the couple had stopped to take a break and heard them calling out for help. A police dog named Groot arrived first and led rescuers to the pair. The brush was so thick in the area that rescuers had to crawl to reach them. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, February 24th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. 